trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you could join me. There is uh, there is so much exciting material to cover, and I'm very happy to welcome back a familiar voice, and that would be uh, Carrie McDonald, who is with the Foundation for Economic Education, among other things. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Brian. It's great to be back with you. I'm happy to catch up with you, and and I guess I'm gonna, I, for the sake of our listeners, some of them are going to be familiar with you. Others may be meeting you for the first time. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your world. What what are you doing to stay busy these days? Yeah, so I'm a senior fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. That's where I spend most of my time. I'm also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a regular contributor at Forbes. But most of my focus these days is on um, the work at FEE, FEE.org, really writing about and speaking about um, the ideas of liberty, limited government, free markets, entrepreneurship, innovation. Uh, and I think that these ideas are really resonating now uh, in particular. I mean, she is the oldest libertarian think tank in the country, founded in 1946 by Leonard Reed. This is the 75th anniversary this year oh, wow. of these founding. So just such an exciting time to be there to not only look back on kind of the history of libertarian thought and free market economics that uh, she has promoted, but also really think about. Um, how to celebrate the 75th milestone uh, for a whole new crop, a whole new generation. And I think of young people who are maybe politically homeless or or, are dissatisfied and disgruntled by increasing polarization and uh, the ideas of, uh, again, individual freedom, limited government, free markets, uh, entrepreneurship really resonate. Yeah, I when you mentioned Leonard Reed's name, I think, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was, somebody turned me on to some old essays of his, and uh, and I just thought, holy cow, how how could this guy not be a household name? And yet, uh, for the people who take the time to, to search out and to read uh, his writings and his essays, uh, there is just so much good information, and, and I think Fee has carried on, you know, in in, in his legacy of, of helping people understand. I love the fact that uh, you are... You are a person who's willing to experience, you know, what uh, what you are learning. Case in point, you mm-hmm. took the plunge into cryptocurrency recently and, and you wrote about this. Um, what prompted you to, to take a closer look at cryptocurrency? I mean, we've all heard about Bitcoin. Few of us really know much about it. And I think that holds us back. What was it that prompted you to say, OK, enough, I got to give this a try? Yeah, so I'm sure many of your listeners are veteran uh, cryptocurrency investors or um, um, people who really enjoy cryptocurrency and know a lot about it. I think others are probably more like me who, you know, we've heard about cryptocurrency, we've heard about Bitcoin, uh, maybe even curious about it, but it it just seemed so mysterious. And, uh, you know, we never thought it was for us, possibly. Um, so that's where I was. I mean, I again, I always thought this is intriguing, sort of this um, monetary system, a virtual currency that runs outside of government, government-backed monetary system um, that has sort of these built-in um, 
mechanisms to prevent the devaluation of this, particularly these particular virtual currencies, unlike, um, say, the U.S. dollar or any other kinds of fiat money that are, are government issued that can be devalued um, through the printing press. And I think right now in particular, where we've seen so much money being printed as a result of the pandemic response, uh, there's serious concerns about inflation and about the devaluation of, of the U.S. dollar and other global currencies. And so that's where uh, cryptocurrency has really become um, much more interesting. And I think we're seeing more and more headlines about it. So that had been in the back of my mind. I had seen some of, of this you know, increasing interest in cryptocurrencies, uh, in these virtual monetary systems. Um, but it wasn't until last week when Fee announced that we just received a $2 million um, donation from uh, Roger Ver, who's a longtime uh, cryptocurrency investor. He, um, he runs Bitcoin.com. That's an informational website about cryptocurrencies. Uh, and it's also an exchange where you can buy and sell um, various cryptocurrencies. And he's a big advocate for Bitcoin Cash, which is what he made his donation to Fee in. Wow. Um, basically saying that it was it was Fee who uh, that opened his eyes to the ideas, again, of libertarian principles, voluntarism, um, individual liberty, limited government. Uh, when he was in high school and reading at the time these long running newsletter um called the freeman and that's really what what started him thinking about a lot of these principles of a free society and he wanted to give back uh with this donation he made a, a similar donation of a million dollars uh in 2013 and now he's doubled that for this year um which is just so exciting so uh, to me that was really what ultimately prompted me to get in the game so to speak in terms of cryptocurrency i thought wow here's someone who is um, you know passionate not only about cryptocurrency but also about these principles of a free society and non-coercion and volunteerism, uh, and who has this informational, easy-to-use website, Bitcoin.com, where you can learn a lot about cryptocurrency. Uh, so I went on to that website as I detail in my in my article that you mentioned called "I Just Bought My First Cryptocurrency," which <laughs> came out last Thursday at fee.org. And um, downloaded the mobile wallet, that uh, app that they have at Bitcoin.com. You can get a cryptocurrency wallet in a lot of different places. But this was one, again, I thought was easy and wanted to support uh, these entrepreneurs, you know, creating these new um, pathways for, you know, thinking about monetary systems and, um, and alternative currencies. So uh, did that. And then I bought $100 worth of Bitcoin Cash, which is a type of cryptocurrency uh, that has low transaction fees. And then as I detail in the article, I said, well, now what? You know, I, I definitely don't foresee myself being a, a cryptocurrency investor. I just simply don't have the stomach for the type of volatility <laughs> that we see with these alternative currencies. Um, you know, interestingly enough, last week, Bitcoin, which has been um, just on a um, on a roll, you know, up 800% in 2020, um, or from its 2020 low and up 30% in value in 2021 as of early last week, then dropped 
uh, in value right as I bought <laughs> my first cryptocurrency uh, because there were concerns that Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen uh, was talking about regulating uh, cryptocurrency and that made the, the market plummet. She since wow. backtracked a little bit on that, but that's still looming. So there's just tremendous volatility, not only in terms of the regulatory space, but just because it is such a kind of new and 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 different um, uh, asset or monetary asset. So I, I definitely don't have the uh, the stomach for that kind of investing, but I wanted to see what it was like. And uh, and so yeah, so then I, I said, well, let's see, what do, what do I do first? So I, I said to my 12 year old son, who's always interested in these kinds of things, anything tech based, I said, what if I pay your allowance this week in Bitcoin cash? So he oh, was up wow. for that. And he uh, downloaded the app as well, the mobile wallet app from Bitcoin.com. And then within a few minutes, he had his allowance appear on the screen uh, in Bitcoin cash. And it's been fun to sort of watch, uh, again, that volatility <laughs> go up and down. You can you can monitor it on, on the app. Um, so that's been interesting for both him and me. Uh, and then I said, well, what else can I do again with this money? Um, because Bitcoin Cash is, uh, does have lower transaction fees, so it, it's better able to be used for some of these uh, these purchases. So I noticed that on the Bitcoin.com website, they had a global searchable map of all the different places that accepted Bitcoin Cash. And I noticed there were many restaurants just around the corner from me that took, that took uh, Bitcoin Cash for payments. So I bought Chinese food for the whole family. Uh, with nice. Bitcoin Cash, so that that's how I how I did it. But I can definitely see the appeal uh, of using cryptocurrency as an investment vehicle and people seeing it as a, a store of value uh, for the foreseeable future. Carrie, we're coming up on our break, so we've got a we've got a breakaway here in about thirty seconds. But when we come back. I'd, I'd like to get your feel, understanding that this is not something you've, you've delved deeply into, but I'd like to get your take on uh, the concept of competing currencies. I, you know, to me, this is, this is a really promising idea in the sense that, uh, as, as you mentioned, we, we, see, uh, we see government people spending money hand over fist. That's, uh, that's going to devalue and debase you know, our, our Federal Reserve notes even more. So I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about uh, what you see as the future for crypto. Will government you know, successfully regulate it and so forth? Kerry McDonald is my guest. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Carrie McDonald, who is a senior fellow with the Foundation for Economic Education. And we've been talking about cryptocurrency. And, you know, Carrie, I think I, I sympathize with you in that uh, I don't feel adventurous enough that I can become a long term crypto investor. But the novelty of it and, and maybe the utility of it makes me think that I, I want to I want to set up a wallet and, and, you know, try it for myself, if nothing else, just to see how many businesses or how many places near me 
are set up for doing transactions in crypto. Yeah, that's exactly my uh, rationale for, again, downloading that mobile app, the mobile wallet app from Bitcoin.com and also just learning more about cryptocurrency and its origins and how it's used and sort of the future of it. Um, I, I definitely see the appeal of it as an investment, but I think it's also worthwhile just to experiment and explore and support uh, not only the entrepreneurs that are creating these alternative currencies, but also the small businesses that are accepting it and some larger businesses. I mean, you look at like Whole Foods and Bed Bath and Beyond uh, are just two of the major retailers that now accept Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency. So uh, it's no longer this fringe idea that I think it was, you know, the first the first dimension of Bitcoin or the first sort of um, substantial cryptocurrency to come on the market was Bitcoin that was first written about in a 2008 paper and then was launched in 2009. Of course, this was on the heels of the financial crisis right? when, um, you know, I, I think confidence really was was shaken in our monetary system. And uh, there was a real hunger for some of these alternative measures and for realizing that um, government backed money might not be the most secure place, uh, you know, to store your assets. So uh, it was interesting to sort of look at the, the history and the origins. Now there are thousands of different versions of what are known as altcoins. So Bitcoin is one uh, and all of the others are known as altcoins uh, or these alternative currencies uh, that are just these digital these digital assets. Um, but, you know, I think one of, one of the interesting things I discovered in researching and writing this piece is as, you know, detailing my own experience and uh, dipping my toes in cryptocurrency was just to see how quickly uh, Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies have moved from the margins into the mainstream. So just uh, as recently as 2018, Warren Buffett, called Bitcoin rat poison squared. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and now, now uh, Bitcoin's market capitalization is just nearing that of Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, so just interesting to see what's changed in a couple of years. Similarly, uh, the, the well-known hedge fund manager, billionaire Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, recently came out on CNBC saying that um, that he believes that crypt his cryptocurrency investment in Bitcoin will work better than gold. And he was another person who back in 2018 said he didn't want to own Bitcoin. Uh, so we're seeing these, you know, high profile investors really recognizing that cryptocurrency uh, is, a, is a good store of value, uh, is, a good, is maybe better than gold um, as an asset and an investment. You're also seeing um, esteemed institutions like Mass Mutual, for example, investing now in Bitcoin. They just bought $100 million of Bitcoin wow. last month. Uh, and and similar, you know, high profile institutional investors, and that's actually driving a lot of um, not only the kind of uh, pedestrian interest in cryptocurrency, people like us who are curious about it, but I think also, you know, driving more of these um, long time serious investors to get into it, uh, and it's also driving up its valuation. 
one of the great takeaways from your article on the fee.org website was a quote from Carl Menger from an essay he wrote back in 1892. I loved this because it illustrates something I think a majority of us have forgotten, and that is money is not an invention of the state. In this quote, he talks about how it's not the product of a legislative act. Even the sanction of political authority is not necessary for its existence. Certain commodities came to be money quite naturally as the result of economic relationships that were independent of the power of the state. I mean, under... under um, uh, Legal tender laws carry we we've kind of become accustomed to think that, well, you know, it isn't money unless the government says that it is. I like seeing this competition. And I and I think, you know, as as the dollar continues to get spent into, uh, you know, oblivion as it's as its purchasing power diminishes. I love the thought that there may be other places people can store and hold value. Yeah. And I. Again, I think that the fact that we have, you know, major institutions and billionaire investors um, suddenly supportive of cryptocurrency and actually in many cases thinking it's better place for their for their investment than gold or some of these more standard um, investment vehicles, I think that's going to drive more of these individual (laughs) curious investors like you and me to give it a try and to see what all of the, the buzz is about. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you bring up Karl Menger, uh, who was really the kind of philosophical founder of the Austrian School of Economics. Um, he wrote, your, the quote that you mentioned, he wrote in 1892 in his essay called The Nature and Origin of Money. But the Austrian School of Economics, um, you know, is traced throughout the uh, 20th century with Ludwig von Mises and then Friedrich Hayek. And of course, these are economists that that we're frequently spotlighting uh, at the Foundation for Economic Education that certainly uh, inspired and influenced a lot of the work that we do there. I think, you know, I love that quote that you mentioned. I think one of my favorite quotes, though, uh, in researching this and thinking about the roots of cryptocurrency is really um, going back to the early days of the Austrian School of Economics and continuing today, I think of uh, Friedrich Hayek, who is the Nobel Prize winning economist who wrote many books. Um, but one of the books specifically that I think is relevant for cryptocurrency was his book in 1976 called The Denationalization of Money. Um, and in there, you know, he talks about essentially freeing ourselves from this universally but tacitly accepted creed that a country must be supplied by its government with its own distinctive and exclusive currency. And if we, he basically says, if we free ourselves from this assumption, then he says all sorts of interesting questions arise which have never been examined. And so he wrote this in 1976. And I think what's interesting about cryptocurrency is it shows that right now these are some of the interesting questions uh, that have arisen when we actually start thinking about alternative currencies. And cryptocurrency is really a creative response to these questions uh, that I think more and more people are taking a closer look at. I'm so glad you shared your experience. And it's it's not only be, it's not just because I've, I've kind of come to trust your voices. You're one of the people out there who I think has a good grasp of what's going on. But I admire you being willing to take the plunge. And, you know, this is something this is intimidating. This is very technical. Um, I, I assume kids may may pick up on it better. You're 12 year old. So you feel pretty comfortable with the, with the whole crypto thing. Well, it's from my understanding, kids can't um, can't buy and sell, um, you know, so, you know, he has the wallet and I'm able to pay his 
to pay his uh, allowance through that, but I don't think that they can actually be investing. I think, you know, there's, there's, um, uh, you know, you have to put in your identity and all and like your, your license and all sorts of things when you're buying cryptocurrency. Um, but it is fun, I think, for kids to just be able to see the wallet and see how, uh, how it works and understand a little bit about the monetary system. Well, Carrie, I'll have to have you back on the show again sometime soon. Um, a lot of things have changed with education, with homeschool, with unschooling. And this is something where you have spent a lot of time uh, helping people, uh, you know, learn about the alternatives. And I, I think a lot of people are going to be looking in that direction. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, thanks again, Ryan. It was great. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to our sponsors, including Monticello College, also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, and AltaBank. That's a mortgage lender. You can find links to each of these sponsors, ways to contact them, when you visit the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. By the way, I will have a link to uh, the article that Carrie McDonald wrote for the Foundation for Economic Education about her experience with uh, taking the plunge into cryptocurrency. That's kind of a tough one for me in, in the sense that, look, it, on, on some levels it makes sense. On the other hand, it's not something that I can put my hands on and i don't know maybe maybe i just would have been better back in the old west when you know we were paying with gold and silver coins but there's there's something that that speaks to me on the level of you don't actually own something unless you can put your hands on it which should shake up a few people when it comes to how they look at money because really most of their money is just it's electrons (laughs) it's you know something in in somebody's computer what happens if the computer goes down? What happens if that information is somehow lost? Well, then, you know, you got a problem. Anyway, moving on. How do you find a credible and reliable source of information in a time such as ours? I, I watched an exchange. Um, uh, this came up on Twitter earlier this morning. I was just going through some material, and I saw this exchange between Senator Rand Paul and George Stephanopoulos. I guess this was on uh, whatever ABC's morning, uh, Sunday morning news program is. And, you know, I, I've seen clearly that the media's take on uh, what happened in 2020 is that, look, the election's been decided. Everything is done. There was nothing wrong with it. In fact, uh, the, the, the really interesting part of this exchange was um, George Stephanopoulos was asking Rand Paul to say the words. Remember how the media would ask uh, President Trump, you know, well, can you just, you know, can you just denounce racial insensitivity or white supremacy? Can you just denounce that force? I mean, he had denounced it over and over and over again. But yes, but just to, to clear the matter up once and for all, could you just say the words? I denounce this, you know, and it just it's such a blatant attempt to bait people into saying things or to put words into people's mouths. In this case, George Stephanopoulos was was trying to uh, get Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, to say 
the election of 2020 was not stolen. And and I got to say, to, to Rand Paul's credit, he never said the election was stolen, but he did very clearly say we never gave it a fair shot. And of course, George Stephanopoulos's response was, well, now the, the, there was 86 different you know challenges and all of those were shot down, which is true, but not on their merits. Most of them were dismissed for technicalities or lack of standing. Basically, the courts just sidestepped wanting to hear the merits of those cases. And then Stephanopoulos went to, but the, the states, they've certified the vote. And so, you know, how are you going to sit there and tell people that the election has been stolen? And it's like he can't comprehend that questions could exist in the public's mind. And I think questions should exist. And look, if, if it were proven, if they could look at the evidence, look at how many votes were, were cast and counted that maybe should not have counted, maybe it would turn the results, maybe it wouldn't. But at least we would have confidence that, uh, that the system wasn't being gamed, even you know by a little bit or by a non-widespread amount of fraud. Because I think that's, that's kind of the qualifier they've gone to. They never saw anything, any, any evidence of widespread voter fraud. But the most telling moment of this exchange, and it's a pretty heated debate between Stephanopoulos and Senator Paul, came when Senator Paul said, look, all we're saying is we want to know if all sides of this story have been considered. And George Stephanopoulos just flat out comes out and says there is no other side. That's a member of the press telling you there is no other side. Now, I'll grant you, you know, the, the within the press... I think there, there's a great deal of consensus and, and, and a, probably a majority of members of the, the mainstream press corps in the U.S. would lean to the political left. And I think they're probably more comfortable, you know, among people who think mostly like they do. But tell me this, how does that not violate every ounce of journalistic integrity? For a journalist or an alleged journalist to come right out and say there there are there is no other side. I mean that's that's what I would expect from, you know, the state uh propaganda services in North Korea. That's what I would have expected from Pravda. There is no other side. That's what I would have expected, you know, in the Third Reich. Everything must be agreed upon. There is no other side. I understand, you know, it can, it can become a huge waste of time chasing conspiracies around and uh, lord knows i've spent enough time doing it myself and i've also spent a lot of time warning people don't be so anxious to go chasing after conspiracies sometimes it can be a waste of time i don't think it would be a waste of time or a conspiracy to look deeper into the questions people had about what exactly happened was it right that election that just uh, i'm sorry uh, attorney generals changed voting rules was it the attorney general? I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was the secretary of state. Anyway, in these states, someone other than the legislature changed the voting rules. That's a direct violation of most of these states' constitutions. Why can't that be heard? Why can't that be examined to see, is it a problem? Did it affect you know, the, the outcome of this election? And if so, what can be done to fix it? I don't know. It just strikes me as really curious that there is such a push that's telling us you can't even question this. And unfortunately, it's just in my nature that when you forbid me 
to do something, then um, I'm only that much more determined to, to well, why are you telling me not to do this? Now I have to. <laughs> oh, man. So there's a great interview with Glenn Greenwald and Reason.com. He was a guest on their podcast, sat down and, and had a marvelous interview with them. If, if, there was a, if there was an information source that I would point you towards to get, you know, good, credible information, I'm not saying everything he says is gospel truth, but I'm saying Glenn Greenwald does a better job than most at giving you the facts and letting you make up your own mind. And Glenn Greenwald right now is one of those uh, lone voices in the wilderness who's speaking up and is uh, is warning about, first of all, uh, a, a new war on domestic terror that is being ginned up by the current administration. They're moving with breathtaking speed to, to get some kind of legislation passed that will make this a reality. The implications here are very, very dangerous, and I would encourage you, look at what Glenn Greenwald has to say about this. I also like, though, in this interview he did with Reason, he gets right to the point about how journalists have become authoritarians. And it may sound self-serving for me to say, hey, be very careful about any information that you're getting from the mainstream media. But I'm trusting that you probably already knew you've got to be careful. People will try to sway you to one side or the other. There are agendas that are often at play. I mean, I have an agenda. My agenda is to hopefully, you know, persuade you that thinking for yourself is way better than not. So that's a little bit of an aberration, but uh, it's, it's just such blatant gaslighting and such blatant distortion. I mean, for crying out loud, the, the, the phrase that has stuck now is it was a white supremacist insurrection that took place at the U.S. Capitol three weeks ago. A white supremacist insurrection. And that's why we have to, you know, we have to get, you know, all of the intelligence organs, you know, focused inward on America so we can find these extremists among, among us. Most of them don't even know that they are. Oh, yeah, that's I'm sure that's going to leave a few things open to interpretation and maybe uh, lead us to a little bit of trouble. Anyway, there's a link to this interview with Glenn Greenwald. You'll find it in the show notes at the Brian Strongly recommend take a look at what he has to say. And if you're not already carefully vetting or at least taking a healthy grain of salt with every bit of news that you're getting from mass media sources, you probably should. I mean, you might you might find some stuff that's useful, but as you're going to see in our next segment, you're also going to find that um, the media, for whatever reason, is uh, is very opportunistic. And with the winds blowing, they believe in their favor. And, oh, look, we have a favorable administration. We're in like Flynn. You know, suddenly everything's coming up roses. I mean, I, I have to laugh. The, the Babylon Bee. Which, which I think does the best job of, of reporting the truth, albeit mixed with a bit of satire, had a headline the other day, Joe Biden wins Nobel Peace Prize for successful first day as president. And looking at the way that, uh, that much of the American media is covering this president versus the way they covered Donald Trump, holy cow, it's, it's Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, pun intended. So when we come back, we're going to talk about how the lockdowns are starting to lift. And it's crazy how many of them have come off just here lately. You have to ask, what's up with that? By the way, Jeffrey Tucker has every opportunity and I think good reason to say, I told you so. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder for you that uh, if you have a commercial business and you need commercial insurance, you probably have some questions. It's a little more complicated, I think, than the, the straightforward homeowner stuff. You should talk to my friend Steve at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. You'll find the contact information right there at the bottom of my show notes page. I post the show notes every day, every day that I do the show anyway, at thebrianheidshow.com. You'll also find a lot of great reading material, including the article that I'm about to share with you from Jeffrey Tucker. I just got this text like moments ago from a friend saying, hey, California just lifted their stay-at-home order, and apparently that's the case. They have lifted their stay-at-home order. He says, why so suddenly? And I don't I don't have the answer, but it is curious. You know, all we needed was a new president, a fresh face of the White House. And suddenly, oh, the restrictions are coming off. The sun is coming out again. And I'm sorry to sound suspicious, but. What the heck? I mean, <laughs> are we just supposed to believe that somehow this just coincidentally happened at this time? Uh, Jeffrey Tucker writes about all hail the reopening. And apparently it's it is taking place. People are starting to admit the obvious. He says, what a glorious thing the reopening is after nearly a year of darkening times. The light has begun to dawn, at least in the U.S. Now, given how incredibly political this pandemic has been from the beginning, many people smell a rat. Is it really the case that the reopening of the American economy, particularly in blue states, is so perfectly timed? Do the science and politics really line up so well? These are questions for another day. And he says, for the record, my own opinion is that the loosening of restrictions is well-timed with the relaxing of public disease fear, whatever from whatever source, political or through exhaustion or through a shift in the media narrative. In any case, it doesn't matter for now. What matters right now is that the astonishing destructiveness of lockdowns might be coming to an end. For those of us inveighing against lockdowns for a full year, he says it's been a truly remarkable week. Restrictions are being loosened or going away. We're finally getting some truth about the carnage, and we are even starting to see some elected officials being honest with us. So let's start in the most locked down state on the mainland, Massachusetts. <clears throat> he says Governor Charles Baker, whose pandemic management has wrecked so many businesses in his state, has decided it's time to open up restaurants and businesses. A hospital epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center admits the lockdowns didn't achieve their goal. Shira Dorn said businesses and restaurants have not been shown to be a significant source of spread of infection. And it's not clear that the additional measures that were instituted in November and December actually helped. So sorry we ruined your holidays and, and lives. The egregious limits on gatherings will persist for a few more weeks, but the tone of the argument it's here, he says, has shifted. It is the most significant change in state policy in a very long time. Perhaps people can soon begin to get their human rights back. The same is happening in other states. Washington, D.C. will resume indoor dining. Maryland's governor has decided the state needs to reopen schools now and no later than March 1st. Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan says Michigan restaurants can reopen for indoor dining on February 1st. 
her health advisor decided to resign. Let's hope it's the beginning of many. Chicago's mayor is now demanding an immediate reopening of restaurants and bars. Chicago is also threatening teachers unions that they must return to work. New York Governor Cuomo has dramatically reversed his rhetorical course and demanded a reopening of the city. And Governor Gavin Newsom, incredibly, has lifted all stay-at-home orders across the state and is permitting dining to open up. Many restaurants have defied orders for months now, and good for them. This new announcement shows their defiance had an influence. Montana's new governor has lifted COVID restrictions. National Public Radio has decided to announce the virus has peaked And the World Health Organization is insisting that the PCR cycle threshold must change. If nations adjust, it should make a big difference in the case trend. By the way, people have been saying for for months the tests were too sensitive, leading to a lot of false positives, a lot of inflated numbers, and a lot of fear among the people. CNN, by the way, uh, has removed the death tracker from its main page, while the New York Times reported a 33% decline in new cases in the past two weeks. Plus, the Times, which arguably, arguably made the most profound contribution to public panic over the virus, is finally reporting on the terrible carnage. And, in case you missed it, Jeff Tucker points out, in, it, perhaps in the most honest statement uttered by any elected official in 12 months, Joseph Biden said the following, quote, There's nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. End quote. He didn't need to qualify that statement. He could have stopped after pandemic. Now, Jeff Tucker says in an incredibly heartbreaking article, the Times chronicles the unspeakable deaths of despair from young children denied schooling over the past year. It's an absolutely shocking article, one that should echo into the ages, given what happened this last year. It's worth a read. As for the astonishingly astonishingly anti-scientific blather dished out by media over the past year, even that is starting to change. The Washington Post has published a helpful introduction to immunological basics, as written by JHU Professor Marty McCary. Now, the article goes on to to further even openly admit what many of us noticed since March. Many medical experts have been dismissive of natural immunity due to prior infection. But there's overwhelming data showing that COVID-19 reinfections are rare, and when they do occur, the infection is often mild. So the point here that Jeff Tucker is making is these basic facts fundamentally change the rationale for locking down. We've evolved with viruses without locking down. Starting in the late 19th century, once we got smarter about viruses, we realized that the protection of the vulnerable and exposure among the non-vulnerable in the framework of a functioning society was the best approach to dealing with pandemics. We pursued that policy for a full century until last year. The unprecedented experiment with lockdowns will end up causing more death than if we had maintained a functioning society while treating disease as a medical rather than a political problem. So I don't know. You know, I'll share this article. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Maybe some people think Jeffrey Tucker is celebrating too soon. I just think it's he's giving some well-deserved acknowledgement to the fact that finally people are beginning to admit what has been playing to others for quite some time. Oh, and he points out, we did have actual experiments in openness in the U.S. between Florida, Georgia, South Carolina and South Dakota, all of these states have been open since spring of last year with life continuing on more or less as normal. 
and the results have been no worse and often better than what we see in lockdown states. It's almost as if the virus doesn't care about your political solutions. Now, he says uh, there's one final data point. He says, I watched the AFC championship football game last night. Gone were the dreary ads of 2020 that all began in these challenging times. Instead, we were treated to pictures of happy parties, friends socializing, people living life normally and happily. Even the masks are going away. True, the stadium was only half full due to the preposterous regulations, but he says it felt much more normal. Are our governments getting wise? Doubtful. But many are feeling pressure to start recognizing the rights of human beings again. The new variant, viruses naturally mutate, and the New York Times is trying to bring calm, might frighten them again. Biden has already imposed new international travel restrictions, so we aren't out of the woods yet. Will they admit error and apologize? Well, that'll take longer if it happens at all. At this point right now, other things matter more. And the priority must be to emancipate us from bad science and destructive policy so we can put our lives back together again. I'm still just a little bit surprised that uh, when when state health experts are being asked, based on what science did you have these businesses shut down in the first place? They're not being forthright. They're not, they're not sharing their data. In fact, they're, they're pretty much just saying, uh, shut up, we couldn't tell you. One explanation that was given was, well, we use uh, tables that are so complicated and so confusing that it would just simply confuse the people and probably lead to terrible misunderstandings. <laughs> you can't handle the truth, I believe is, is what they were trying to say. I think it's worth asking some questions. And hopefully this will help some people put fear back into perspective. I'm still encountering, you know, people who, you know, they they have it drilled into their heads. You know, everybody you meet is a deadly threat. It makes it really, really hard for a person who's operating under that kind of fear to to be out in public and, you know, to, to treat other people like like people as opposed to some disease vector. Thanks once again for joining us. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.